Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. For more than 60 years, Bob Steele was the voice of Southern New England, entertaining listeners of WTICAM with his wit and humor. Connecticut author Paul Hensler has written the first ever biography of Steele, chronicling his hardscrabble beginnings in the Midwest, his early career as a boxer, and his almost accidental hiring as an announcer at WTIC in the midst of the Great Depression. In this episode, recorded at the Connecticut Historical Society, Hensler provides a look into Steele's life and work. Natalie Bellinger of the Connecticut Historical Society will chime in here and there to provide a bit of historical context. Starting with the early life of Bob Steele, you notice that he is born as Robert Jesse Steele. Kansas City, Missouri native, July 13th, 1911. I've underlined the middle name because in later life, as many of us listen to Bob Steele, he'd always say, you know, Robert L. Steele, the L is for Elmo, the L is for Elm or something like that to make a joke of it. But his middle name at birth was really Jesse. And he decides, is, uh, I believe he's probably in his teens or so, there was a neighborhood bully by the name of Jesse. And he wanted to disassociate himself from that and thus took up and changed the middle name to Lee. That carried forward for basically the rest of his life. His parents were divorced at an early age. Bob was about five or six years old. His father worked as an agricultural product salesman out in the Midwest, probably did not spend a lot of time at home very much. And as an only child, it ended up that parents became divorced. And Bob goes to school, he works. He goes to school, he works. He kind of ping-pongs back and forth between going to school and getting some kind of a job, any kind of a job, to bring money in to help support himself and his mother. They lived alone in Kansas City for a number of years. Quite interesting, when you look at the life of Bob Steele, his birth is not significantly different from the birth of the medium of radio. Radio, of course, is developed to have some uh, means of communication from ship to shore. Uh, Ocean liners and other uh, ocean-going vessels in distress now have some way to be able to communicate back to the mainland. And it wasn't really envisioned in the earliest days that this would blossom into an entertainment medium, but uh, eventually it does. As a young age, Bob Steele ends up building a crystal radio set for himself, and because their magazines are available, sometimes he would sequester himself in a closet and pretend he's in, in a radio booth, and he would read the ad copies and pretend that he's actually doing announcing on the radio. So I found this to be quite compelling. As a young boy, he builds this radio set and does this uh, quasi-radio announcing, if you will, so that we get a very early foretaste of what his later career would actually turn into. He goes to school, again, uh, back and forth. He finally uh, attains uh, the three-letter designation that he liked to jokingly put at the end of his name in later adult life, Robert L. Steele, HSG. The HSG stood for high school graduate, and he does finally graduate at the age of 18 in 1929, and he carried this very proudly with himself the rest of his life, became self-educated in a very advanced way, which we'll get to a little bit later. Develops a nearly love for motorcycles, bicycles, and automobiles, especially motorcycles. Indian motorcycle is one of his favorite. Um, at the age, I believe he was about 18 years old, he actually makes a trip from Kansas City to Springfield, uh, Springfield, Missouri, Springfield, Massachusetts, to visit the motorcycle plant. Uh, he gets a tour of the motorcycle facility. He, it took him, I think, eight days as he kind of dawdled his way. 
heading east, but then his trip back home, he was much more expedient. It only took him four days to get back home. We know these things because he kept diaries, and this is what's so compelling about the man. I just want to address this early. This is why we know so much about Bob Steele, because he kept these diaries laden with jokes, laden with humor and puns. This part of his personality never left him from the, basically from the day he was born to the day that he died. But he keeps track of all this stuff, and this is why we're so lucky to have all this information available. One of my early meetings, I think it was my very first meeting with Phil Steele, we were talking about the, uh, the Bob Steele collection and all this material that's been donated to the Hartford History Center. And Phil told me, he said, my father would be appalled if he knew that all this stuff was donated someplace that could be accessed by the general public. But again, what's so compelling about Bob Steele is the way that he wrote, it's almost like he's writing for an audience, perhaps maybe thinking that someday this might be made public because there's very little dirt that we find in the diaries. And uh, I, that, that is a good thing. It, it gives a very wholesome view, and we'll get into a little bit more about Bob Steele's personality. And of course, he became a boxer, has a checkered record as an amateur and a professional fighter. I think his overall record ended up being something like 58 and 12 or something like that. And uh, of course, he liked to joke about it because he liked being the underdog. He liked betting on an underdog, which is why his sports prediction record was so terrible. But nonetheless, uh, he always enjoyed boxing. The onset of the Great Depression, October 1929, doesn't strike panic across the whole country all at once, all at the same moment, but very, very gradually, it starts to pick up momentum. Bob Steele is also working as a motorcycle magazine correspondent. He makes this wonderful discovery as a precocious writer, and we'll get to that, I believe it's on the next screen. Not only is a precocious writer, he finds that he can put his motorcycling talent to use, by writing articles, submitting it to a magazine, and I get paid for this. How great is that? So this is something, again, to earn a little bit of extra income. But eventually, economic conditions do catch up in Kansas City, and like many, many other people did out in the Midwest, they migrate to California. They resettled in California. He goes to Los Angeles, gets a job at a motorcycle shop, not surprisingly, December of 1930. A couple months later, in March of 1931, his mother follows him out there. She takes up residence, becomes very acclimated. I'm sure the weather had something to do with it. Very acclimated to the weather. She made friends with her neighbors. She got very entrenched with the, within the community. So she has no reason to depart. And for several years, of course, Bob Steele takes his motorcycling talent with him. He was a hill climber. He was a motorcycle racer. He ends up getting a uh, spot in uh, three films as a stuntman, working as a motorcycle stuntman. The page that's reproduced here is from Motorcycling Magazine. The little cartoons that you see there, that's his handiwork also. He was an extraordinary artist, this extraordinary cartoonist. And he would embellish not just articles like this, but his own personal mail that he sent out. That was all also part of his talent. The journalist also and a racetrack announcer. This is what propels Bob Steele into the radio career that he would enjoy for so many years. He's injured, not surprisingly. I think he had about 14 or so very bad motorcycle accidents, and he's actually lucky to have lived as long as he did. But as he's laid up because of one of these injuries, he goes to a track in Southern California, and he's obviously not racing that day because of the injury. Just by coincidence, the racetrack announcer for that day's event does not show up. Racetrack needs somebody to do the announcing, and who fills the void? Bob Steele. 
He not only has this wonderful knack of puns and jokes, but he's expert in every single aspect of motorcycle racing. He knows the machine itself. He's familiar with a lot of the drivers and the racers because he's raced against them before. So he's well-versed in every aspect of it. He fills in for this announcing gig and wins instant favor with just about everybody at the track. So all of a sudden, he's a popular announcing guy that people want to have. And one man who wants to have him is a man by the name of George Lanham. He's sponsoring motorcycle racing events, trying to get this to be sort of a, a, a countrywide uh, phenomenon. And he comes to the East Coast, Northeast in particular, and he's sponsoring motorcycle races that are gonna be staged at the old Bulkley Stadium, which is down the south end of Hartford, exists no more. There's a commemorative plaque there, supposedly. And also in Albany, New York. And again, thinking to the time that in the Depression you couldn't buy a job, so Bob Steele decides, well, I'm gonna come and follow the work. So he's come, he comes to Hartford, he arrives here May 10th, 1936, he gets dropped off at Bushnell Park right near Union Station, and he figures he's gonna be here until the end of the racing season, which is basically toward the end of September. So this is his gig. He comes to Hartford, he calls the races at, at Bulkley Stadium, he also goes to Albany, New York to, uh, to call some races there as well, and then, shortly after Labor Day, after the season runs out. Oh, incidentally, playing to his writing expertise, he's also contributing articles for the programs that were sold at the motorcycle races also. And again, his familiarity with the, with the racers that he knew so well. All of this commentary gets worked into his persona and everything that he was able to give back to George Lanham as a promoter. Well, we come to the end of the racing season, and on September 30th, he's hanging around downtown Hartford, literally waiting for his ride to take him back to California. He's got some time to kill, and there is a movie playing at a movie house on the old State Street. He shows up a little bit before the end of the film, and the woman working at the ticket booth advises him, well, if you go in now, you're going to see the very end of the movie, and it's going to spoil it for you if you're waiting to see the second showing of the film. So he steps out of the movie theater, he's got some time to kill, he wanders over by Central Row. What's there? The Traveler's Insurance Company complex. And up on the sixth floor of the Grove Street building is WTIC Studio. He goes up there because he has time to kill. He just kind of walks in on a lark and he says, do you have any announcing jobs? And Ben Wade, who was, I believe, the boss at that time, said, well, we've auditioned 12 guys already. What's one more? You want an audition? Come on in. He filled out a job application took the audition, and he was on the year as a staff announcer the next day, October 1st. And one of the favorite artifacts that I ran into, reproduced in the 10 volumes, but when I actually saw the document I, myself, it adds that crucial piece of why historians like to look at documents firsthand rather than reproductions. He begins his career October 1st, 1936. And what does it say right below there? It says. It must be understood by the applicant. This is the, the very top banner of the job application that was cropped out on the, in, uh, the uh, books that Phil Steele curated. It must be understood by the applicant that the, uh, the approval of an application does not carry with it the promise of a permanent position with this company. So he started working on October 31st and basically worked at WTIC for the rest of his life. The other thing that I was able to incorporate into the text is his little uh, station identification line, WTIC Hartford, Connecticut, USA. And there was a very good reason for that, and I had the good fortune to meet the radio historian of WBZ in Boston. And she told me that way back when, before there were television signals and satellite signals, 
50,000 watt radio signals could carry extraordinary distances. And given the right circumstances, there was a phenomenon referred to as sky wave propagation. WTIC actually had in their office someplace a map of the globe, and they would put little colored pins or some sort of a, a signifier of where their signal could be heard. It could be heard as far away as Australia. Rarely, rare occurrences, the atmosphere had to, everything really had to be in perfect alignment for this to happen, but it was something that could happen. Uncommon, but it could happen. So he adopted adding USA just so that somebody listening in a foreign country would have some idea of where the signal is actually coming from. We come to the most important person that Bob Steele ever met, and this would be Astrid Shirley Hansen of Beverly Drive in West Hartford, Beverly Road, I'm sorry, in West Hartford. Her story is that she had graduated high school and took a job with Aetna and then moved over to the Travelers. And in 1936, as Bob Steele is just beginning his radio career, it turns out that they happened by coincidence, they happened to share the same elevator going up in the Grove Street building. And he's absolutely smitten by seeing this beautiful woman in the elevator. He gets off before she did. She was up on the ninth floor, I believe. And, but he gets off and he's smitten. He has to know who this woman is. He has to find out who she is, he has to ask her out for a date. So he asks her out for a date and she agrees for a curious reason. Outside the studio, somewhere around uh, Grove Street and Prospect Street, there was a very fancy automobile that was parked at the curb every day. She thought that he was the guy who owned the car. <laughs> So she agrees to go on the date, and he said later on, he says, it wasn't she surprised when I showed up at her house on foot to go on the date. Well, they, they went on the date anyway. They apparently hit it off very well together. And as you can see by the little inscription that he wrote on the photograph there on the right-hand side, by the fall of 1937, they did become engaged. They were married in early 1938. Their first son, Robert, also told me that when you go through the material and see all the, the, the butt of the jokes that she became for him, that she could give it back to him in equal measure. We just don't have as much of a track record. But Robert assured me that this was a two-way street of you know, one making fun of the other, and I think that's what helped make their uh, marriage so happy and healthy for so many years. In the meantime, Bob Steele is also cultivating his own radio persona with a series of shows. And, uh, to, I, I appreciate somebody might ask the question about, uh, you know, when was he on the air, how long was his show, that sort of thing. You have to look at the particular point in time that you might be dealing with. So when he first comes on the air as just a staff announcer, then he, he segues into uh, the G Fox Morning Watch. And even G Fox only sponsored a portion of that show. They cut their sponsorship in half. I forget what year it was, sometime in the early 1940s. So even there were changes there. But nonetheless, that was his first real gig was doing the, uh, the G Fox Morning Watch. And the hours uh, were tailored over time as well. When he got his own show, I'm sure as, as many of you remember, by the time we get to the 1980s, he's really doing a 5.30 to 10 a.m. show every day. And that's kind of where I came in. I came in as a Bob Steele fan, sort of a late-in-life listener, if you will. In 1938, he goes to his bosses because being a big sportsman himself, Bob Steele, he wants to know the ball scores. He wants to know the score of the ball games. At this time, night baseball was really just getting off the ground. It was a, a, almost a novelty. So he goes to his bosses and he says, you know, we get our news feeds from Boston. How about if we have a late afternoon or very early evening show, just 15 minutes, just to get people caught up on scores of especially baseball games because they're played in the afternoon. 
And thus, from that little idea came what became known as a show known as Strictly Sports. Just a recap of what, what took place during the day. And of course, he comes up with this idea, so he becomes the host of the show. So not only is he working in the morning, doing his morning gig, he now has to go back to the studio to develop material for and broadcast his Strictly Sports show. So he's becoming very, very busy very, very quickly here. And of course, then later uh, in, as the career, as the, uh, the decades go by, we have the Bob Steele show. His famous features, of course, the word for the day. He was uh, beyond high school. Bob Steele is kind of self-educated. It's really quite compelling. He just developed this love of words, love of dictionaries. Bob Steele sought to be able to educate his audience because a word for the day was just trying to correct a, a particular mistake that he may have heard. Like the, the word for the day is athlete. It's not athlete. The word for the day is sophomore, not sophomore. So he wanted to make sure that people had the right pronunciation down. Of course, spelling was very important to him as well. So he comes up with the word for the day that carries on as one of his most famous traditions. He also had a feature called Tiddlywinks. And these would be little blurbs that would come across the newswire that might be related to celebrities, or maybe somebody had a funny story to share, and it made it to the news line or some little quirky event that would happen. He took those and made them into what he referred to as tiddlywinks, and he would take the copy from the, the teletype machine and he would edit that himself for clarity. He wouldn't change the content of what was being uh, uh, put across the wire, but uh, he would keep the content the same, but he would uh, tailor it to be good to his ears, which he knew would be acceptable to his audience because he wanted to make sure that the grammar and everything was correct. Very famous, of course, for his no school announcements. If you mention some, his name to somebody of a certain age, one of, the first, uh, one of the first memories they'll say is, oh, the no school announcements. And that's quite true because he was famous for reading those. But uh, later in his career, that actually got handed off to staff announcers. But nonetheless, uh, people will still remember him very much for those no school announcements. Announcing 80th birthdays, if somebody turned 80, 80 years old, uh, their name would be submitted to the show and he would compile these and day by day he would uh, list the uh, on the actual birthday uh, listing the names of the people sports personalities anybody recognize this chap right here I'm gonna... Willie Pep yes born in Milltown Connecticut became very famous as a uh, is the boxer from Hartford, Connecticut, world featherweight champion and of course Bob Steele being very in tune with the uh, sport of boxing uh, cultivates a great relationship with Willie Pep. Not just Willie Pep, back before Major League Baseball expanded, you would have a team playing, for example, the St. Louis Cardinals would be playing the Boston Braves in Boston, and then they might be traveling by train, of course, traveling down to either Brooklyn or New York for their next homestand. Well, as it turned out, they would be passing through Hartford, and back in the day, the late 1930s, especially during the Depression, might be fun to stop off in Hartford or someplace and play an exhibition game. You charge a little bit of admission. It's a quick way to pick up some ready cash. So it wasn't unusual for teams to stop off in Hartford. Gave Bob Steele a wonderful chance to interview personalities like Babe Ruth or Leo DeRocher or Dizzy Dean. Babe Ruth was past his playing days, but he did have some encounters with, um, with Babe Ruth. Of course, very well known in the boxing world, Bob Steele cultivates relationships with a lot of boxers. He interviewed Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier. He flies down to Miami to call a fight around 1956, I believe was the date. And Bob Steele did not like to fly, but he had to bite the bullet this time because this was a big assignment for him to call a nationally broadcast fight from Miami. 
His angst is soothed somewhat on the way home because he gets to share the airplane ride with Jack Dempsey. So the Manasseh Mahler, he cultivates a wonderful relationship with Jack Dempsey and they hit it off. Bob goes down to New York and visits him at his restaurant. So this is one of those chance meetings, if you will, that uh, blossomed into a very uh, productive uh, friendship for, for both gentlemen. So boxing certainly was foremost, but baseball ran a pretty close second. If you look at the entry diaries that, uh, uh, that Bob Steele had created, you see he loved to go to baseball games too. Time checks and antenna switches became part of the repertoire on his show. Um, not listed there also. I remember he used to have a little segment where he would do the, uh, the weather, the, the temperatures from different cities around the world. It was the kind of that, that lilting little music in the background. He would say, you know, the temperature in Copenhagen is 53 degrees. In Paris, it's 62. You know, he'd go through these world cities. And it gave people a foretaste of what was going on in the rest of the world because in the days before Internet, unless you had the weather page from the newspaper in front of you, you'd have no idea what the weather is someplace else. So this was just something he liked to share out with his audience just to keep them informed too. The last thing I have there is the 100% wrong club. And uh, he jokingly referred to that. Of course, he wasn't 100% wrong in most cases. He did pick winners on occasion. But as his son Robert told me, the reason he was wrong so frequently is because he loved an underdog. And if you think of the Yankee tradition, the New York Yankee tradition of winning so many pennants and so many World Series over many years, he said, you know, anybody can pick the Yankees, they win. Okay, what kind of a big deal is that because they win so often? But if somebody picks the St. Louis Browns or his particular favorite for year after year after year, the Chicago White Sox. That was one of his uh, staples when it came to uh, opening day in April for the new baseball season. And he'd make this big, uh, big production out of making the announcement that uh, my, my pennant choice for this year for the American League is the Chicago White Sox. He was correct in 1959. He was partly correct in 1983 also. The Sox won the division that year, but they didn't beat the Orioles for the American League pennant. So he's, he's kind of half right in that, uh, in that instance. But uh, jokingly referred to as the 100% wrong club. The lasting recognition that he receives, again, really quite astounding that by the early 1980s, he he, uh, his show reaches the top market share in the country. This is not the number of listeners, but the percentage of the listening audience that are tuned listening to his show. And this was absolutely astounding because here you have Hartford as a relatively small market. We're wedged in between Boston to the northeast and New York City to the southwest. He comes up with the top market share. I believe it was for two years running. And this, of course, leads to uh, his induction into the National Radio Hall of Fame in 1995, long-running personnel, and he still, he still had miles to go here. He still had a few years before he officially segued off the air, but uh, also in his honor, posthumously, the old Grove Street in Hartford was renamed as Bob Steele Street, and I have a picture. This is up at the top of the street right by the Traveler's Complex. Uh, the other sign is down at the foot of the street uh, by Columbus Boulevard. But nonetheless, the, uh, the placards are still there from uh, being renamed. I, I think that took place in uh, 2006. And the, the middle picture that you see there, I just happened to capture the date at the bottom. July 13, 1991 had special significance because that was the day that Bob Steele turned 80 years old. And of course, they had this gala event. I believe it was held at West Farms Mall. There were a couple thousand people there. Tom McCarthy had segued into being his sidekick at that particular point. And when it came time in the show to list the 80th birthdays, of course, Tom McCarthy goes Bob Steele into standing up, as you can see, very formal, uh, clad in a tuxedo, stands up and he gets to announce his own 80th birthday. So that was a, quite a significant picture that I ran across. The title of this slide I really got a kick out of because 
This was the title of a feature article that was written about Bob Steele probably sometime in the 1950s. The title was The Sleepless But Amusing Life of a Radio Announcer. And as I was writing the book, I could not help but find these common threads that ran through every phase of his life. So the first eight chapters of the book are pretty much a, a birth-to-death biography, what I would class as a traditional biography. But I ran into so many of the other facets that I said I started to open up a, a separate Word document, and every time I ran into something related to how he's keeping track of spending money, jokes that he would make, uh, another appearance on behalf of the American Red Cross, especially for blood drives, that was a huge charitable venture of his. So all these little subtopics I put into separate documents. I said, okay, there's really a lot more to tell about the man himself, more so than just this traditional birth to death biography. So again, we know he's a diarist because of the diaries that he kept, and those are available at the Hartford History, Li- uh, Hartford History Center at the Hartford Public Library. He may not have written in a diary every single day, but he does so frequently enough that we can paint a, an overall picture of what his life was like. Integrity, extremely important to Bob Steele because when Bob Steele's oldest son was running for office, it could have been for Congress or it could have been uh, the uh, the gubernatorial run in in 1974, I believe it was a newspaper in Bristol, Connecticut, was asking a question, well, Bob Steele's son is running for office, so we're going to wonder, you know, how much he's going to be promoting his son on the air. And they came to the conclusion that if you didn't know that his son was actually running for office, you'd never suspect it by listening to his show. This was a completely separate venture. He would stump for his son away from the radio studio, but he felt there was uh, no place for him using his airtime to advertise anything for the benefit of his son. Uh, Of course, the the puns and the self-deprecating humor never left the man. Uh, Looking at the earliest diary entries, it's really, uh, it's wonderful to, to read these things and just know that that humor has carried through his entire life. He would take photographs of himself, and if he wasn't happy with the way he looked in it, he would draw a monocle on it. He would draw you know, a, a calabash pipe. He, he would uh, cartoonize uh, pictures that he didn't like of himself. He just had this wonderful, whimsical attitude about so many things. And this is inherent not just in the diary entries, but especially in the scrapbooks that they have at the Hartford History Center. Sue LaRue worked for an area of the radio station referred to as Radio Continuity. And they were charged with writing on-the-spot scripts and just basically handing them to Bob Steele. And he would read these at different points, say if there was a little bit of a break in the action after giving a sports report, and then they finished playing a song. And he, of course, you all know he loved his old-time music. They might need a little script to fill in something, or they might have a new advertisement that had to be read right on the spot. And if somebody handed him a piece of paper that had a misspelling on it or something that he didn't quite understand, and he's trying to recover from a possible mistake, and he would be furious about things like this because he expected that everybody would have everything letter perfect the way that he would have done it himself. So this was sort of an uneasy side about him, but he demanded this perfection because he demanded it of himself. In later years, as he gets into his 80s, there's some controversy about he's finally going to retire, and then he ends up signing like another three-year contract to remain on the air. So he has a tough time spending so many years on the radio and, and pulling himself away from it. He finally does, 
and he assumes a very part-time role once a month, I believe his months that he was on the air was something like April through October. He didn't go out during the, the bad weather. And I think the radio station actually sent a car for him to bring him to the radio studio. So he wasn't expected to drive himself because he may have even segued out of that by his later years. But his last show was really just a couple of weeks before he passed away in December of 2002. And as Bob Steele liked to sign off his programs on occasion, I couldn't resist borrowing this quote, pip pip, cheerio, avidezean, adios, and all that stuff. So thank you very much for your attention. Questions, please. Hi, this is Natalie. I'm filling in the audience questions that you can't hear on the original recording. The first audience question was, did Bob Steele ever sleep? I tried to piece together kind of a, a day in the life of Bob Steele, if you will, and so, Let's say he gets up at 4.30 in the morning, then he does his radio show. He answered his fan mail fairly frequently. Maybe not 100%, but fairly frequently he'd answer his mail. He might have a luncheon engagement or speaking engagement to the Rotary Club or Civitan, whatever, you know, a civic organization. If a team is passing through Hartford, he wants to have an interview with Dizzy Dean or whatever or somebody. So he could use that material fresh on his show that night. Well, of course, he's putting all that together during the afternoon, and then he finally gets home at quarter after seven. And then, again, the, or if, if he has a speaking engagement at night because he's a wildly popular after-dinner speaker, so he might not get home till 10 o'clock. And again, the cycle just repeats and repeats and repeats. And I made a comment because it just became so evident to me. I put a comment in the book. It seems like he's a man in perpetual motion. The second question was, how did Bob Steele handle the turbulence of the 1960s? Turbulence of the 60s. Um, he is a pacifist for many, many years. And you can look at the, uh, the diary entries or uh, Phil Steele's 10-volume set. He does not like war at all. Um, when it comes to the issue of Korea, this jumps out most, and it's a, a, a wonderful, a vivid passage. And he makes a comment in the diary entry saying, I'd rather see the United States lose face by withdrawing from Korea. I'd rather see the United States lose face because GIs are losing faces, meaning they're the casualties, they're the actual victims of war, and he did not want to see that happen. And this stretches uh, through for, for many, many years, whatever the, the occasion happened to be. The third and final question is, how did Steele handle his transition to television? I exactly. Uh, I didn't have a lot of pictures to put in the book um, but one that I found at the Hartford History Center, and he has this look on his face like he had just bitten into a lemon. I mean, he just, he just has this sour look on his face. Thanks for listening. Paul Hensler's book, Bob Steele on the Radio, The Life of Connecticut's Beloved Broadcaster, is published by McFarland. We wish to thank Natalie Bellinger and author Paul Hensler. This episode was produced by Natalie Bellinger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. I'm Walt Woodward, and I hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg. <laughs>